1: We have a really special episode for you today, and I'm particularly excited to be bringing this one to you. We have a, a special guest, Dr. Ken Richkus, the chief of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's Division of Migratory Bird Management. Uh, y'all will remember probably that we had Ken on last year to discuss cancellation of the 2020 Waterfowl Breeding Population and Habitat Survey. A lot of our loyal listeners will probably know by this time that we've had we have another year where the survey has not been we've not been able to conduct the survey and we, we spoke with Frank Bald, one of the Canadian Wildlife Service, recently to get his perspective north of the border on kind of what went into some of those decisions. But the Fish and Wildlife Service is, is certainly one of the lead agencies on this survey and uh, were responsible for making some of the decisions regarding their participation in the survey this year and the ultimate cancellation of it. And so we felt it was appropriate to try to get Ken in to share some of that perspective and we we've been able to make our, our schedules align and very happy to have Ken with us here today so welcome back to the podcast Ken thanks for thanks for joining us
2: great Mike it's uh it's great to be here today and always happy to join you about talking about ducks and, and other issues affecting waterfowl conservation but uh, unfortunately it seems to be again for less than des- desirable reasons
1: yeah well that's uh, I think we're all becoming a, a accustomed to unusual events and unusual conversations, and hopefully uh, conversations that we won't have to revisit very often in the future, or if at all in the future in this regard. So uh, thanks again for joining us. And and in terms of your position, I'll just kind of reiterate, restate, you're the chief of the Division of Migratory Bird Management for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. When we had you on the podcast last year, we went into a bit more detail about your Personal and professional background and the, the the career that career track that you've been on, we're not going to do that again. But we'll just say that your your division, uh, the division of migratory bird management, is the one within the Fish and Wildlife Service that is responsible for a lot of the decisions and a lot of the management of naturally migratory birds, and certainly waterfowl fall under that. Um, uh, under under that banner. So you are the relevant person to help us with this conversation. So we're going to jump right into the conversation here. And and as I mentioned, we this is not our, our first rodeo. We went through this last year. And when we had you on last year, Ken, we... I think we were all anticipating that 2021 would allow us to get back in the air to conduct the waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey, which is of course the survey that gives us our may pond numbers and our, our breeding waterfowl population numbers from across North America. And, and here's where I want you to kind of take us through the steps of, you know, what was happening within your division, um, and what ultimately, what ultimately got canceled, you know, so I guess that's what, at the high point or to start off here, give us an update on the status of the survey, which ones were canceled and were there any that you were able to, con- to conduct? So let's just start right there, high level.
2: You bet. And, and Mike, as you pointed out, 2020 was certainly a challenging year on, on many fronts. And, and as you mentioned, we did unfortunately have to cancel this survey last year You know, right when we were planning to do the May survey in 2020, that was uh, early into the pandemic. Um, I know a lot of us down here in the U.S. were under stay-at-home orders, different restrictions in different states. I think as a country, we didn't know a whole lot about the the coronavirus and how it was transmitted. Um, So I think last year when we did make the decision to cancel some of our our major monitoring programs, it was really done out of an abundance of caution uh, to help protect our employees, uh, the North American public. And then also adhere to some of the state restrictions that were in place i know unfortunately last year we did have to cancel several of our several of our major monitoring programs the mid-continent sandhill crane survey obviously the may waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey Uh, we canceled several of the the goose surveys that are associated with the may survey like the ungava uh, ap goose survey up on the ungava peninsula Um, USGS also had to uh, really cancel the the breeding bird survey effort across the US and Canada as well. So lots of disruptions last year. Um, Since that time, we've really learned more, I think, about the the coronavirus and how COVID was transmitted. And we were able to use a lot of that to put COVID mitigation measures uh, into place and actually do risk assessments. So we spent a bunch of this last year really trying to figure out how to get back into the field and uh, do it safely. Um, We did end up resuming um, flight status there at the end of 2020 and uh, we're able to get folks into the field and and back into airplanes, doing what they do best. I know we had to modify some efforts, uh, reduce the number of observers that we had in some aircraft. Um, Obviously we had some mask mandates in aircraft as well, but for the most part, we were able to resume, especially some of the, the simpler type surveys. Some of our more complex surveys, we still still postpone some of the eagle surveys that we do for both bald and golden eagles, uh, really uh, involve multiple observers and multiple crews and, and moving around. So those got to be more complex, but a lot of the simpler surveys that we could do. So I think moving into 2021, we were all very optimistic. Um, that we would be able to resume to the, uh, the May survey here uh, this past year. And, and really, things were looking pretty good. Um, you know, their COVID numbers were starting to track in the right direction here in the U.S. Uh, and in Canada, for the most part. Vaccine rollout was uh, in full swing in the, in the U.S. and and uh, we were all very optimistic that we'd be able to pull things off. Uh, but unfortunately, there come mid-March, early April, I know we started having some new variants that were impacting Canada pretty hard. Um, A lot of the provinces uh, up there in Canada certainly had some restrictions regarding travel. And uh, the border still effectively remained closed with Canada, which ultimately ended up um, being one of the major reasons we did end up canceling um, our participation in the the May Waterfowl Breeding Population Habitat Survey this year in, in Canada. That was the big driver.
1: Yeah, I want to explore that a little bit more because, as I told Frank Baldwin, uh, one of the primary reasons why I think it's important to have this conversation and hear from the Canadian Wildlife Service and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service directly is to share with people some insight onto the the actual decisions that were being made and and how those decisions are made, why they're made, and and in some cases— Who's making them? I think it's easy for those of us that are passionate about waterfowl, uh, waterfowl hunting, and that look forward to these data every year to find cri- to find fault and find criticism with uh, with the government. I mean, the the government takes hits every day, right? That's always a fashionable thing to do, and so this is no different. And so I've I've heard and I've I've seen some comments about you know people criticizing the. The Fish and Wildlife Service, Canadian Wildlife Service, about not being on their game and and sitting back and it's it's unimaginable to think how they cannot be geared up in time to conduct this survey. You've had an entire year to think about it and and that and I understand that I understand sort of the off the cuff reaction of that nature again because it's fashionable to uh, to be critical of government agencies at, at any level, but that's not uh, that's not a I guess you'd say factual representation of what actually went went down here. the uh, The agencies were gearing up to do the surveys, uh, and then then we had a, a resurgence of the virus in Canada, which which really caused. Uh, I mean, it threw a huge wrench into the logistics of how this survey has to be conducted. I, I think it's important for people to realize that U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is the agency that provides the planes, they provide the pilots, they provide the observers, and you you have to think about you know national sovereignty of airspace and those types of things. Uh, Ken, tell us how that works. You can't you as in the Fish and Wildlife Service can't just hop in a plane and fly north of the border into the airspace of, of Canada and start counting the surveys. Can you?
2: Not at all. And uh, Mike, as you pointed out, really the, the May surveys every year really is a cooperative effort, uh, primarily between the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Canadian Wildlife Service, but uh, we also involve the participation of uh, Um, A lot of the different states, as you mentioned, the Great Lakes states and then California, Washington, and Oregon in the West. So it really does involve a tremendous amount of coordination amongst all the different players. But uh, yeah, as you mentioned, we were planning, you know, full steam ahead and really optimistic that we could pull off the May survey this year. I know we were in constant communication with Canadian Wildlife Service staff at multiple levels throughout the agency. Uh, planning for the May survey and then getting you know constant updates on on uh, the Canadian Wildlife Service's ability to do field work and, and whether or not you know we would actually be able to get into the country. I know I talked to folks in Canadian Wildlife Service headquarters at least weekly if not more and then we were in contact with some of the folks in the field offices uh, almost daily planning. Um, also, as you mentioned, Mike, these surveys are pretty complex. You just can't hop in an aircraft and then go up there and start counting ducks. It does involve uh, several months of planning. Um, just from the, the logistics side, I know we have to get uh, insurance to operate aircraft in Canada. Um, we have to work with the State Department and the U.S. and Canadian embassies to get the country clearances that we need. Uh, we actually have to submit names of pilots and observers that all have to be cleared and this is on a normal year too, so it, uh, that whole process does take months to put into place. So uh, we were, you know, like I said, planning uh, to move forward, and uh, we were watching this, the situation in Canada pretty closely. Um, ultimately, yeah, the deciding factor was this, really the the, uh, the fact that CWS did not get the approval that they were hoping for to get out there and do field work um, because of the, the COVID trends uh, in the provinces across Canada and some of the restrictions that were in place. I know the border was effectively closed. There was some limited travel back and forth across the border, really for essential purposes only. Um, but if you were able to get across the border, there was uh, two weeks of quarantine involved. Um, often you needed to stay in one place within a province. And of course, our pilots don't do that. Um, so we enter Canada and, and largely start traveling from south to north. And and um, I know that caused some concern. Cause the last thing you know we wanted to do or Canadian Wildlife Service wanted to do would be Vector to further uh, spread COVID and become, you know, an additional burden on the, the Canadian healthcare system. So um, really, I think it was that that decision right there—the um, fact that CWS could not get the approval that they needed to do the field work—and and, and um, you know, a decision was made in the interest of the, the Canadian public um, not to uh, to get out there in the field and. Um, Really that caused us to, uh, to kind of rethink other options. So we were always optimistic that we do the survey, but I know through the last, you know, four or five months, we spent a lot of time doing contingency planning. You know, what if we couldn't get into Canada? What would we do? Um, what if Canadian Wildlife Service employees were able to get out there and do groundwork in Canada? Could we come up with a population estimate just based on the groundwork only? Uh, would it be feasible to, you know, just apply or fly the uh, the U.S. only portions of the, the survey and come up with an estimate that way? So we we're all hoping, hoping that we'd pull off the full survey, but um, we had several teams kind of across the both organizations, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Canadian Wildlife Service coming up with different contingencies.
1: Yeah, those are all great points. Uh, thanks for providing that clarification or the, those details, Ken, and, and, that Your insight combined with Frank really gives us a complete picture of, of what went into those decisions. As you mentioned, the Canadian Wildlife Service was not able to get approval for their field work and that those decisions came at a level much higher than their own agencies. So, um, these things were out of the control of the agencies that were responsible for, for conducting the surveys. And I know the, the Canadian government was particularly concerned about... Um, about those Northern communities, those indigenous communities where they don't have access to great healthcare. And there was, if something were to get transmitted into those remote locations, then boy, that's a huge issue and huge risk. And so it's the complexity of the complexity of the survey during any normal year, I think um, exceeds most people's, including my appreciation. And when you when you throw a global pandemic into the mix, I mean, it just becomes unmanageable in, in many respects. And I think that's what we saw over two consecutive years.
2: That's that's kind of where we landed. And I know we are still in pretty close contact with Canadian Wildlife Service. I know the, the border situation gets reevaluated monthly, if not weekly. And um, we are still planning, you know, um, especially kind of turning our attention to banding and, and what might be possible there and, and what, what contingencies we may need to make there.
1: In terms of contingency planning related to the survey, Ken, there was some discussion that I had heard about, um, well, could we do a U.S. prairie-only survey? Uh, and would that be, would we be able to get enough data from that? But, uh, you know, from my my understanding, there was sort of a risk-reward kind of assessment there. And and ultimately, when you think about the risk to put the, that the, the, that these flights, that these surveys pose to biologists and observers and, and the pilots to begin with, and then coupled with the challenges that it would have presented, to, um, presented for drawing conclusions at a continental level from just a small segment of that population, I think ultimately y'all just decided that wasn't going to be worth doing. Is Can you elaborate a bit on that?
2: Sure. We looked at multiple contingencies and, and certainly flying the U.S. only portion in North and South Dakota and Montana was, was one contingency that we looked at. Um, as you know, Mike, unfortunately, ducks are not uniformly distributed across the breeding grounds. And uh, a lot of those species settle where uh, the water wetland conditions are, are favorable. Um, so one of the dangers of sitting there and just flying North and South Dakota, Montana, and then expanding that, you know, across the entire uh, breeding range to come up with an estimate is the fact you'd end up um, with a bias, uh, potentially a biased estimate. Um, so that was a, a real concern, but that was um, a contingency that we did look at. And uh, you're right, uh, these surveys cost money, Um our pilots are out there flying at 100 miles an hour at 100 feet. And if you were to have an issue and something go wrong, I think you have about six seconds to, to react and uh, put the plane down safely. And um, I, don't, I don't think the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, wanted to take, I didn't want to take that risk and put our pilots in danger for information that uh, probably couldn't be used to inform harvest management decisions.
1: And that's a great segue, Ken, to the next thing that I wanted to talk about here, which is how how the lack of data from last year as well as this year is affecting harvest regulations. We're recording this here in mid-June, Harvest regulations here in the United States uh, and in Canada as well, as Frank Baldwin talked about. But we're just going to be speaking about the fish wildlife or the U.S. regulations here. Uh, the regulations for twenty one, twenty two are already set. There's a new process, new timeline for which regulations are being set, and that's that continues to be a topic in our mind on our list of things to really dig into detail on. We don't want to get into the you know, in, into the weeds on why we're doing it that way now, but, but that is the case where our 21, 22 regulations are set based on data on ponds and habitat conditions, uh, ponds and population sizes in the previous breeding season. In this case, it would be 2020. How is all of this affecting the Fish and Wildlife Service's ability to set those regulations? And what does this second consecutive year without observational data mean for our ability to confidently, confidently set regulations for the 22-23 season?
2: Well, as you mentioned, Mike, we did go through this last year and, and uh, we spent a fair bit of time looking at for ways to make a good uh, defensible um, decision regarding harvest management uh, back in, in uh, for the 21-22 season, this upcoming coming hunting season. So we spent a lot of time working with the flyway tech sections and flyway councils, uh, exploring some options And uh, at least for waterfowl, especially ducks in particular, we are incredibly fortunate to have uh, such rich uh, um, long-term data sets. You know, we've been banding ducks since the 1930s. We've been conducting population uh, surveys, May surveys, since the mid-1950s. We've been conducting a lot of our harvest surveys since the 1960s. So we have these really rich long-term data sets that uh, allow us to, to uh, help make population predictions of what we think the population could be. So even in the absence of having that May survey data, we were still able to uh, forecast what we think population size should be. And again, May surveys were canceled, so we didn't have that population estimate. But a lot of the other harvest surveys that we do, like harvest surveys and banding, where we get the harvest rates, survival rates, were conducted last year. And uh, we were able to uh, take a lot of that information and uh, really forecast population size and uh, hopefully make really good harvest management considerations with the, with the support and conjunction of our partners in the flyways. Uh, so that's really how we made the d- decision last year. And I suspect we'll be doing uh, very much the same here here this year. And uh, when you take all those those long-term data sets and, and uh, are able to forecast like that, it, d- it does give you a fair bit of power to, to hopefully make good decisions in the
0: You and your dog are a team.
1: One thing that I'll say here, Ken, that in in the position that I'm in, I, I talk with a few people about what's going on. They ask me about the surveys and what can I update them on. And Of course, I get all my information from folks like you and the state, our, our state partners, and our, our Canadian Wildlife Service partners. One of the questions that has come up rather persistently, and I know I know you've heard it. I know some of your staff have heard it. I've actually talked with them about it. And this is the idea of okay, well, we don't we're not be, we're not able to get up in the plains. To uh, to conduct the surveys this year, can we use remotely sensed data to estimate the number of ponds that are out there? And and I'm sure that's running through the mind of some of our savvy listeners. Like, why can't we just use satellite imagery, which is collected more frequently now, to estimate the number of ponds? Because one of the things that we'll talk about here in just a moment is this developing drought, and that's on on people's minds right now. Uh, what I can tell you, and what I can tell our listeners, is it's it's not that simple. Um, yeah. uh, I, I I am, I think the short answer to this question is that at some point in the hopefully near future, and I'll say near future five to 10 years, it would not surprise me at all if we have the ability to use some of this finer resolution satellite imagery, 10 meter resolution imagery to get a better handle on pond numbers. But that, that resolution of data is still pretty new. And in order to use, even if we could do it this year, um, you would have to go back and develop some relationships between satellite-based data and your your uh, your observed pond data, and and it's just it's not that simple. That's usually my response to people when they ask me about it. I'm like, yeah, in theory that's possible, and I think someday we will get there. And Ken, I know your shops, your people are thinking about that, but we're not there right now, and it's going to take a few years to do so. Um, so I. In case people were wondering, I just wanted to throw that out there. Anything to add there, Ken?
2: Yeah, I, I will follow up on that. I know the Fish and Wildlife Service and, and uh, the Division of Migratory Bird uh, Management, we are investing pretty heavily, actually, in remote sensing and bringing new technologies to our survey and monitoring programs. And I would love to sit down and talk to you about that at some point. And we can probably pull in our branch chief for uh, migratory bird surveys and pilot uh, Mark Conniff, who's kind of leading that effort for us. Um, But uh, you're right, we're not quite there yet, especially to be able to use satellite data and and, uh, don't quite have the resolution that we made or need Um, for decision-making, but you're right, we're probably not that far away from doing so. Um, The one thing I will add as far as informing, helping inform um, this coming year's decision, um, we were able to uh, incorporate U.S. and Canadian precipitation data. Uh, As you know, we go up there every year and count ponds and that uh, pond numbers really give us a good estimate of recruitment every year, the wetter it is, the more ponds, the typically the more ducks that we have. And as you know, pond numbers uh, correlate fairly well with uh, precipitation data. So we were able to pull off um, quite a bit of the precipitation data across the U.S. and Canadian prairies and uh, plug that into our, our recruitment models. Um, so even in the absence of pond data, the, the drought and the dryness of the Canadian prairies and potential impact on, on uh, production is still captured in that decision-making process.
1: I want to come back to that drought question in just a moment. But first, uh, before I forget about it, we talked about cancellation of the surveys across most of what we call the traditional survey area. That's the prairie region. That's the Western Boreal Forest of Canada. That's the Eastern Boreal Forest of Canada. All of those surveys were canceled. But what about surveys in Alaska? Alaska is the sovereign property of the United States. We don't have to necessarily get foreign permission to conduct surveys there. What can you tell us about uh, whether surveys were conducted in Alaska?
2: So we did actually conduct surveys in Alaska this year. And, and again, I know that took a lot of planning and logistics as well. But that is, as you know, a U.S. state. Um, we did not need any any foreign permission to, uh, to get up there and fly. But uh, there were a lot of considerations up there, especially in some of the indigenous areas, um, just like in northern Canada, where they have limited health care. Uh, we have that same situation that exists across uh, much of Alaska. So we're very cognizant of that in our decision-making. Um, but I am happy to report that we did get up there and, and fly almost all the, the uh, Alaska Strait of this year. Um, that survey was completed. And um, where that is really useful for us is helping set harvest regulations in the Pacific Flyway. So um, that framework that we use to, uh, to help Um, guide harvest management decisions in the, in the Pacific flyway treats Alaska, Alaska as a distinct distinct group or a distinct population. So that's combined with information from um, state data, California, Washington and Oregon to help inform harvest regulations for the Pacific flyway. So we're having to do some estimation for, um, the states that were not flown this last year, but we do have uh, true observable data from Alaska. So that was one benefit. It should give us a little insight as to what's going on with some of these species.
1: What we're seeing with regard to the resumption of surveys, uh, waterfowl surveys across the U.S. and Canada is, is not unlike what we're seeing with the gradual uh, easing of of travel and COVID restrictions across North America as well, right? It's like we're slowly getting back a few pieces of data here and there. There were some states in, here in the, around the, in the Great Lakes region that were able to conduct their breeding population surveys. North Dakota, again, conducted theirs. I'm not sure on the status of any breeding population surveys from the northeastern U.S. states, um, if, if, if any of those were conducted. But uh, as you mentioned, I think one of the states out west uh, was able to conduct their survey. I'm, I could be wrong on that. But anyway, we're starting to get back a few pieces of data. Hopefully next year is going to be a full resumption of all of those activities. Getting back to the drought here, Ken, uh, as, as you mentioned and as others have heard us talk about on several episodes, it is developing, has been developing for over a year uh, across much of the prairies, the Canadian and U.S. prairies. Mike Zemanski gave us an excellent update on what they saw with uh, in, in North Dakota, dramatic historic decline in the number of ponds from one year, from last year to this year. And we're going to be talking with Pat Kehoe here shortly about uh, sort of a, a, a windshield assessment of, of pond conditions across the Canadian prairies. How is the drought... Um, factoring into your into your mind or into your into the process for setting regulations for next year, because the drought that we're seeing right now is going to be affecting regulations for the 22-23 season. What's, uh, how's that playing in your mind and into the process right now?
2: Oh, it always causes me some concern and it's always hard to see the Canadian prairies or U.S. prairies, you know, go dry like that, but that is part of the natural cycle and and really what makes those uh, wetlands so dynamic. And, uh, you know, wetlands are, wet, uh, duck numbers, uh, duck populations are really able to respond in kind when the, when the wetland numbers are, are right. So uh, as, as much as it's difficult to see, it is part of that natural cyclic process that uh, we're accustomed to up there. Uh, but how it affects harvest management, um, you know, as I mentioned there before, we are incorporating some of that uh, precipitation data into our, our recruitment models. So it really should be captured through that adaptive harvest management process and that drought should factor into expected production and recruitment this year and, and uh, seasons should be addressed, you know, adjusted accordingly. So I don't wanna to speculate too much on what the drought's going to mean for the 22, 23 hunting seasons, but um, let's kind of let the process play out, see how the adaptive harvest management models update and we should have, uh, we should have that information available um, late July, early August. And then we will certainly have some really good discussions with our flyway partners on how to proceed there, uh, given that technical recommendation. And then, as you know, Mike, often uh, the next step there is to uh, have that discussion with the service regulations committee and then make formal recommendations that will ultimately get codified in, in the regulations. Um, so that's kind of where we stand, you know, while the drought certainly causes me concern, but uh, I think we're pretty early in the process for setting the 2223 regulations and, and uh, we'll be guided hopefully by a lot of the data that will become available. Uh, here over the next uh, few months
1: fair enough I, I won't make you speculate on on <laughs> what on what is and and why 4s and that type of thing just yet that's uh, as you've mentioned numerous times we we set uh, y'all set harvest regulations based on based on data in a very structured informed manner and and uh, i hope we can all appreciate that we're we all lament the lack of data uh, right now but uh, but yeah uh, fair enough i won't ask you to speculate too much on what will <laughs> or what you think won't happen Happened, but we will. Uh, would you be willing to come back on with us later this year or early next year to give us a, a summary of, of how all that played out?
2: Absolutely. Always, always willing to talk about uh, where we're at and how we make decisions and, and uh, why we make the decisions that we do. So.
1: Moving on here to a couple of other issues, Ken, I, I did want to talk briefly about any type of other activities that may have been affected this year, like summer banding. Uh, we talked with with Frank Baldwin about how the Canadian Wildlife Service's restrictions on field activity are affecting their ability to get up into the Arctic. There will be very limited Arctic goose banding this year, but they, do, they are hopeful that they will be able to band ducks uh, later this summer. And so I wanted to get uh, Fish and Wildlife Services take on that as well? What type of activities are being planned in terms of uh, summer banding effort for for ducks?
2: Yeah, uh, banding is is uh, also very much like May surveys, where we need to plan uh, several months in advance to get our crews north of the 49th parallel and, and up there in Canada so again, we're kind of hoping for the best and we're hoping that we'll be able to get our crews up there, but um, the jury is, is still out on that one. I know we're talking daily with uh, some of the folks in CWS, uh, working on some contingency plans like we did last year, um, watching the, the border status pretty closely. I know that's kind of being um, reviewed or updated on a, on a monthly basis. We're all hoping that uh, COVID numbers in Canada and the U.S. continue to trend in the right direction and, and um, we see more uh, freedoms when it comes to, or more liberties when it comes to things opening back up. So that's where we're at. Um, still don't have a final word on whether or not we'll be able to get U.S. crews uh, across the border, but that's what we're planning for, and that will likely be a, a game time decision coming up sometime, you know, next month. Um, so we'll certainly see where where we land with that one. But if if we can't get up there and band, and and uh, I'm hopeful that CWS will be able to get back out in the field and. And run some banding stations, and then we'll, we will we uh, will mobilize our crews uh, here in the U.S. Uh, to hopefully continue to get the, the the critical banding information that we need.
1: One final question here for you, Ken, and, and I just want to make sure we ask this and and let you respond directly. Uh, do we do we anticipate resuming these surveys next year? Uh, assuming assuming COVID continues to ease the Fish and Wildlife Service, Canadian Wildlife Service, and all the state partners are, are fully committed to resuming these surveys next year and getting back to the process?
2: Everybody that I've talked to that are involved in these cooperative survey efforts from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to the Canadian Wildlife Service to, to the states, uh, we are all fully committed to, uh, you know, doing all that we can to, to get back out in the field next year. Um, this is just critical data for us and 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 um, it's really the foundation of uh, making good decisions and that and, uh, we want to get back to, to uh, that operating status as soon as we can. So,
1: well, that is uh, that's music to my ears. And I'm sure that's going to be music to the ears of many of our listeners that do look so forward to that data every year. I mean, we we, um, we tailor several magazine articles or magazine features around that every year. And, uh, and so that's, that's kind of thrown a wrench into some, some of our own internal planning just from the, from that perspective, but we're, uh, you know, we're going to fill that content with other material. So, so that's all, that's all well and good. That's a very minor concern in the grand scheme of things. Any final word for our, for our listeners here, Ken, or regarding anything that we, that we may not have covered that you wanted to share?
2: No, I think that's the, the Key thing here, and and like I th- like you said earlier, Mike, it's it's complex. It's not as straightforward as hopping in an airplane and flying across the border and counting a few ducks. And it, it does take a lot of coordination uh, within the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Canadian Wildlife Service, under state and provincial partners. And uh, I know every single one of those folks is committed to uh, to working for the resource and the American and Canadian publics. And uh, it just didn't work out for us this year, um, which is unfortunate. But um, again, you know we looking out for the the safety and well-being of the US and Canadian public. And, um, you know, from what we know from our long-term data sets, ducks are quite resilient. And while it's less than desirable, I think duck populations are going to be just fine. And, and uh, even with the drought, I think they'll respond in kind when... Um, uh, water returns to the prairies.
1: Well, with that, we've probably taken up enough of your time. I do want to thank you again very much for for joining us here. You're a busy person. Uh, us us lining schedules up here is a challenge in itself, but I appreciate your your persistence in in doing so. That means a lot, and it tells me that that it's important to you and your agency to get uh, to help communicate on some of the work that's happening. And and we're we're happy to be. Uh, to be an avenue for helping in that communication, so thank you, Ken, and thanks to your agency for the continued work that y'all do to manage this resource.
2: Thank you, Mike. It's always a pleasure to take a day, I take a break from the day-to-day bureaucracy and, and sit down there and talk with one of our conservation partners, and talk about ducks, and and uh, you know talk about issues that are near and dear to all of our hearts.
1: A special thanks to Ken Richkus, our guest on today's episode, the Chief of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Division of Migratory Bird Management. We greatly appreciate his time and and input. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the work that he does on these podcasts. And then to you, the listener, we thank you for your time, and we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.